0: Proof that medicine and science keep advancing and keep moving forward are the continual updates to the management of cervical dysplasia put out by the ASCCP. The last update was in late 2019 or early 2020, and there were some big changes in those treatment algorithms. So I want to thank Stacy, who sent me a message that was really relevant in light of those recent changes. Here was her question. Look, understand that sometimes we need to excise tissue from the cervix for high-grade lesions, but really, what's the best way to choose between a LEAP or a CKC, a Cone Knife Cone? And the answer is actually deeper than you would think. It's not like, well, we're just going to do an excision, and no matter what you do, whether it's a cone or a LEAP, they're both equal, and we're just going to pick one or the other. No, there really should be science and evidence to guide our decisions because they really are slightly different. They both get the job done, but there may be times when one would be preferred over the other. And by the way, if your answer is, oh, well, I just do a leap in otherwise younger patients and I do a cone in older patients, well, that's not that valid either. Because remember, just because they're older doesn't mean we need to sacrifice the majority of their cervix because the basic principle of surgical technique is only remove the affected or the pathological area and leave native or good tissue behind. So in this podcast, we're going to first review the updates to high-grade dysplasia from the ASCCP, and then we'll get into some specifics regarding LEAP or cold knife cone. Regarding the treatment guidelines from the ASCCP, remember that these guidelines are dichotomized by age, specifically in patients under 25 years of age, where more conservative management can be done, even for high-grade lesions, but we'll get into that in just a minute, and patients who are above the age of 25. The reason is, is that there is a high rate of spontaneous regression of HPV and even CIN2 and a low incidence of cancer in patients who are under the age of 25. Now, a quick word about CIN-3. CIN-3 is a true pathological precancerous lesion. And in most cases, almost universally, CIN-3 should be treated and excised for true diagnosis. So we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But remember that the basic premise is that the ASCCP divides treatment guidelines from 25 years of age and under or 25 years of age and above. Now, regarding management of CIN2 or 3 found at coposcopic biopsy. The ASCCP states that in all non-pregnant patients with a diagnosis of CIN-3, treatment is recommended and observation is unacceptable. So once again, right off the bat, if you get a CIN-3 on cervical biopsy, the ASCCP guidelines is that that requires treatment and observation is not advised. In non-pregnant patients with CIN2, treatment is recommended unless the patient has a big concern about the effect of treatment on future pregnancy, and we'll talk about those in a little bit further on down the podcast. According to these guidelines, observation is unacceptable when the squamer-columnar junction, or the SCJ, or the upper limit of the lesion is not fully visualized, or when the results of an ECC shows CIN2 or more. Of course, the rationale is that CIN3 is considered an immediate cancer precursor and treatment is always recommended and observation is never acceptable, except maybe during pregnancy. Observation is acceptable for CIN2 in patients concerned about the potential effects of treatment on future pregnancy because there is some ties to both Cone Knife Cone and LEAP and things like preterm birth. But I'm going to give you a big surprise here in a minute regarding that risk of preterm birth and treatment because it's not exactly what you think. Now, when treatment of histological high-grade is planned, excisional treatment is the preferred method, although it recognizes that ablation can be done in some select cases. But in the U.S., there's no doubt that excisional treatment is used much more commonly for high-grade lesions than any ablative technique. Excisional therapy consists of course of what we're talking about here, which is loop electrical excision procedure or a LEAP or a cone knife cone. There's also a laser cone biopsy which is done in some parts of the world but really isn't done that much in the U.S. Of course, ablation treatment includes cryo, laser ablation, and thermoablation. But the problem with ablative therapies is that you destroy the tissue, and you never really get to prove that nothing else was hidden, in other words, an occult microinvasive cancer, and to me, that's kind of scary. So that's a clinical pearl. One of the main reasons not to treat CIN3 would be during pregnancy where the risk of bleeding could be substantial. But even that is controversial because some feel that CIN3 is micro-invasion to approving proven otherwise and would push towards excision. But you see how complicated it is. Because it's not just about pregnancy, but how far along the patient is in that pregnancy. Obviously, if you find CIN3 and she's 34 or 35 weeks, you're not going to do a leap or a cone there because it's going to be a bleeding nightmare. But again, it's not just a pregnancy as a category, but things like gestational age, past history of the patient, and other comorbid factors go into play. But in general, pregnancy is considered an accepted contraindication to excisional procedures even if it's CIN3. Otherwise, CIN3 should always be treated. All right, we have to restate it because it's an important point. According to the guidelines, CIN-3 should always be treated. Again, maybe the caveat is pregnancy, but again, even that's controversial. But CIN-3 should always be treated, even in patients under the age of 25. And according to the guidelines, quote, observation is not acceptable, end quote. So remember, CAN3 is treatment, and the way that it's treated is with an excisional procedure, which is the whole focus of this podcast, either LEAP or cone Knife Cone. And we still haven't answered that question, but that's coming a little bit further down in the podcast. A quick word about expedited treatment. For non-pregnant patients 25 years of age or older, expedited treatment, which is proceeding directly to an excisional procedure after a high-grade pap smear without having coposcopic biopsies first, is preferred when the immediate risk of CIN3 or more is greater than 60%. Once again, expedited treatment is preferred for non-pregnant patients 25 years of age or older with a high-grade cytology and who also have concurrent positive testing for HPV genotype 16. Now those who can also have expedited treatment are those patients who have been few or rarely screened in the past and have HPV positive high-grade cytology regardless of the HPV genotype. Here's a good place for us to kind of stop and just kind of review CIN2 in patients who are concerned about future fertility, or specifically patients who are younger than 25 who have a spontaneous rate of resolution that's pretty darn high. So for patients with a diagnosis of CIN2 with concerns about future fertility issues, then either observation or or treatment is acceptable, provided that the SCJ is visible and CAN2 is not identified on ECC. So remember, in a patient with CIN2 who's under the age of 25 or concerned specifically about fertility, then treatment or observation are both acceptable. Now, if the pathologist hedges and calls it CIN2-3, which I hate because I wish they'd commit to one or the other, then it really is a case-by-case issue because that 3 there throws a wrench in everything. Personally, I do it management if they're under 25 because a lot of those just resolve. But if it's clearly CIN3, remember that's different, then the ASCCP encourages treatment. In cases of CIN2 and less than 25 years of age, observation is preferred. And in those cases, COPO and cytology is recommended at 6 months and 12 months. If the patient has CIN2 on biopsy, but is greater than 25 years, but still declines treatment because she has concerns about fertility, which are valid, then observation is acceptable. COPO and HPV-based testing should be done at 6 and 12 months for those over the age of 25. So remember, if you're doing observation for CIN2 under the age of 25, it's COPO and cytology at 6 and 12 months, and over the age of 25, it is COPO and HPV-based screening, again at 6 and 12 months. One of the changes in 2019 was how long the surveillance should occur. Remember, we're talking about observation for CIN2 in women who are concerned about fertility or are under the age of 25. Under the age of 25, again, it's COPO and cytology, and over the age of 25, it's COPO and HPV. If those two results at 6 months and 12 months are anything less than CIN2 or H then you would repeat cytology under the age of 25 in an additional year. So that takes it to two years. If the patient is over 25 years, then you would do an HPV-based test at that time. And if that test at the second year mark is negative, then the guidelines state that you should do HPV-based testing annually for a total of three years. In other words, that's a five-year total surveillance. Do y'all get that? Again, the immediate short-term follow-up is at 6 and 12 months for CIN2 non-treated. And if both of those are anything less than CIN2 histology or ASCUS H cytology, then you can repeat an evaluation in one year. It's a PAP under 25 or HPV test if they're greater than 25. So that's at the two-year mark. And again, if that two-year mark test is negative, then you can get an HPV-based test annually for three years, taking it all the way for five years. Once that first five years of observation is done, then the guidelines state that the patient should be retested at three-year intervals for at least 25 years. During this observation, if there's any abnormality, of course, then colposcopy should be done and those biopsies should guide further therapy. Okay, so now we're at excision. Leap, or cone. Well, before we answer that question, a quick word about post-excision surveillance. In other words, I'm not going to give you that answer yet because it's important to recognize what to do after you do a leap or a cone. The ASCCP states that after an excision, HPV-based testing at six months is preferred regardless of the margin status of the excisional sample. Now, what's the rationale for that? preferential use of HPV in follow-up after excision is that HPV testing is the most accurate predictor of treatment failure or of dysplasia outcome, not margin status. Again, that's regardless of the margin condition. Although the relative risk of persistence or recurrence of high-grade dysplasia is almost five times higher after excisional treatment with positive margins, it could only predict 56% of persistence or recurrence in all the published studies, whereas persistence of HPV did much better at predicting recurrence or persistence. If that HPV-based test is positive, then COPO and the appropriate biopsy should then be performed. Now, if you prefer not to do an HPV test at 6 months, then you can follow up at 6 months with COPO and an ECC, and that's also acceptable. Remember, the guidelines say that after excision, HPV testing alone is the preferred. Retreatment for positive margins may also be acceptable based on the patient's age and her desires or lack of desires for future fertility. When margins are positive for CIN2 or the ECC performed at the original excision procedure shows CIN2 or more in the patient who is greater than 25 years of age and concern of fertility is not an issue, then repeat excision or observation is acceptable. Remember, for observation, the HPV-based testing in six months is the preferred. All right, everyone, pay attention to this one because here's an important caveat. If the original excised specimen shows AIS, so adenocarcinoma in situ, and the margins are positive or the ECC is positive, that's the time when re-excision is definitely preferred. And observation is obviously not indicated because we're talking about AIS. So if the initial specimen is AIS with positive margins or the ECC is positive, then the guidelines state that re-excision is necessary in order to achieve negative margins, even if hysterectomy is planned. All right, so that's the clinical pearl. After original excision, do an HPV test in six months, and if it's positive, do copo and biopsies, and that will guide therapy. But if there's positive margins or the ECC is positive for CA CAN2 or more and the patient is greater than 25 years of age and fertility is not that much of a concern to her, then you can offer re-excision or just wait for that 6 months follow-up of HPV test to guide further therapy. So that brings us to our original purpose of this session. Is it better to do a cone or a leap? Well, for those of you who favor a leap because it somehow would give less adverse pregnancy outcomes in the future, well, that's not actually the case. So let's first say a word about adverse pregnancy outcomes, namely preterm birth, which is a valid fear. The theory that a leap destroys less tissue than a cone and therefore is favored is, well, somewhat of a myth. Based on cohort studies The primary rationale for deferring treatment of CIN2 is a potential risk of adverse OB outcomes after excisional therapy, although the magnitude of this risk is debated. Now, of course, if you do a big honking cone and you take off three-fourths of the cervix, that's not going to end well in terms of a future reproductive life. But in the most part, we're talking about only destroying or removing the tissue that has to be removed. All right, guys, this is kind of wild. Check this out. Studies are complicated in terms of preterm birth outcomes after either a leap or a cone by the finding that patients who have untreated cervical dysplasia actually have a higher risk of premature delivery than the general population to begin with. Isn't that wild or what? In other words, it may not necessarily be the treatment alone, but the whole fact that they have dysplasia to begin with. So let's say that again because that's a clinical pearl. Patients who have severe dysplasia do have a higher risk of premature delivery over the general population even without treatment. Although several studies have concluded that excision is associated with increased risk of preterm birth, especially as excision depth increases, others have actually not found it an association after adjustment of the potential cofactor of dysplasia alone nonetheless it's still considered best practice to avoid excessive tissue destruction when possible because that is just part of good standard surgical technique. Well, having said all that, we still didn't answer the question. Is it better to do a leap or a cone? Well, we're going to leave that question for part two. But do you see how important it was, at least I think it's important, to review these algorithms? Because if we just go into, hey, do a leap in these cases or a cone in these, we kind of miss the whole premise that HPV is very valuable in post-treatment surveillance. We miss the fact that age is a big factor here, under 25 or over 25, and that surveillance is not just the first year or two years, but actually can extend a total of 25 years. So I hope this background sets the stage for Part 2 which will come up after this podcast, which is answering the question, leap or cone? We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls to answer that question. Thanks, Stacey, for the recommendation on this topic. It's a good one. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.